trees. And I'm, mm, I'll see. I'm rewinding. <laughs> Sorry. That's pretty good. Not bad. Not bad for a rookie. How did that get turned off? <clears throat> Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. The blood of Jesus provides the entrance. Sometimes we have to stop and think, why would we go in there? Bob Thiessen told a funny story last night about waiting to get into a store that was closed. And then the lady came and opened the door at opening time, <clears throat> went on in. Bob's standing next to another guy there. And the guy said, well, does that mean that we could come in? And it's like, well, no, she opened the door so that we could stay outside. <laughs> And then the proverbial, here's your sign. <laughs> the door is open. The entrance is made. The blood has been spilt. Payment. Once for all is complete. And the writer of Hebrews says, therefore, having boldness, let's go in. Having the boldness, not our own boldness, but the very boldness of the blood of Jesus that provided the way and opened the door then let us draw near. But why do we go in? This writer has taken us through a series of conversations about the whole tabernacle and the temple and the furnishings and the pieces and the holiness of God. And from that we've learned that only the high priest got to go in one time a year into the presence of God, into the Holy of Holies. And with blood. Now we have blood. The blood of Jesus. And what did the priest do when he went in there? Sometimes we're focused on the actions. The truth of what it is is simple. He was going in to worship. Why did the priests go into the temple? Why did they go into the tabernacle? Why did they do the service every day? Sometimes we lose focus and we think it's all about the serving. No. These were acts of worship. These were designations by the God of, of the universe who said, if you're going to approach me in worship, then do it this way. And it will be acceptable to me. Let me provide a series of processes and activities that you can fulfill. And by doing that, you will be able to come in before me in a, at least a semi-state of holiness, which I will provide for you. And while you're there, then worship.
Come sprinkled. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled. What does that mean from what we've learned? You recall Moses consecrated everything, sanctified everything by blood. Some said that in the, in the history of the studying these passages, uh, the New Testament says that with hyssop and blood, and, you know, it was the, he would dip it in and then shake and sprinkle that blood all over everything, all over the people of the covenant. And then he would take the book that he had written that God told him to write, take the blood and sprinkle it on the word of the covenant and then on the people. The blood is what connected us to covenant relationship. Without blood, there's no covenant. Without blood, there's no remission of sin. Without the blood of Jesus, there's no access. But we now have access. So come on in. Draw having your heart sprinkled by the blood of Christ. And have your conscience clean. Hey, I'm, I'm looking forward to this. How many of you live with a clean conscience? It's ours. It's not something that's just mystical. It's ours. The Bible says he gives his beloved sleep. We're supposed to lay down in our sleep be sweet. Why? Because we have a clean conscience. Someone said to me once, and this is always troublesome when you go to a men's conference. They said those with the cleanest conscience fall asleep first. In any men's conference I've ever been to, I must have the worst conscience. Because that whole room starts snoring. And once it starts, I cannot get to sleep. I don't think that counts. I think if I'm by myself, I can fall asleep just fine with a clear conscience. But when you're in a room full of snorefesters, man, you just can't get any rest. Now, Rob, you remember the time we went with Mike? And he, he left the room to make his final run to the potty. And while he was out of the room, we bet on how fast he could go to sleep. I mean, we were into seconds. I said 60 seconds. No, 90 seconds. I'm talking not, not more than two minutes. You know, it's like. <sighs> the sad part was he could snore the best. And we did not sleep for some time. Having our hearts sprinkled. From an evil conscience. And it says our bodies washed with pure water. And we again were reminded by the writer in the reflection of the, the covenant process of coming to the brazen labor. Offering sacrifice on the brazen altar. And then the brazen labor to cleanse themselves as we know has been related to us by the washing of the water of the word. The word washes us. Makes us clean. Acts upon us. Jesus said, you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free, set you free, make you free, act upon you, and let you live free. But we can't get it without the Word of God. You can't get it any other way. You're not going to live free without God and His Word. You live in some cultural mechanism that will look like it, but you won't really be free. He says, so with a pure conscience, our bodies washed, by the word, then let's draw near. But why do we draw near? We draw near to worship. Now, men, I want to talk to us for a second because Father's Day is coming. And it's not about Father's Day. 
But it is about the Bible. Have you thought about recently that the priests were all men? The leaders of homes were men? And that men are called to lead worship in their homes and in the temple. Men. I grew up in the feminist generation. I grew up in a single-parent household that was fatherless. I am the product of a single mother raising four sons. Yeah, listen to the mother's moaning. Yeah, that was pretty common at our house, too. And we just summarized this week that I, I think my mom did an excellent job. I'm I am so grateful for my mother. But gentlemen, I confess to you that if you want to go out hunting, I'll be the one asking the most questions because I could shoot you. I don't, I don't know how those things work. I had to wait till my kids were grown up to learn how to fish because I never learned that. I didn't do the manly man things. You know, I was raised by a skirt. Ladies, forgive me. Boy, I can relate to women, though. There's a tender piece in me that's wonderful that most guys don't have. And and there are days I'd trade it for a little hunting and fishing. But what we lost in my generation was the leadership of the home by the man by the father, by the priest of the house. And the Bible still has it right. Just because the culture shifted doesn't mean we shift. Dads, let me charge you. Worship in your house should be generating from you. You're the leader. When God called the priesthood, he called the men to step out in front and do what was necessary to worship and to lead the family in worship. It's your responsibility. That feminist generation thing needs a reversal. It has to be changed. And men, don't be fooled by this. The Old Testament, as I mentioned a moment ago, shows all these practices and methodologies and, and ways of entering and you know washing and cleansing and doing certain ritualistic kind of behaviors. And that's a lot easier for us. We want a list. We want the things to do. We want to know that we did it right. We want to function down the list and say, okay, got them all. That means we did it. When you read the Bible, the most successful man that I can see in the area of leading worship, and my heart just breaks when I think about him, is little David. Little David didn't have an iPod. He didn't have a CD player. He didn't have anything like that. He had to take his little flock of sheep and his own dulcimer or whatever he had, and go into the woods or go out into the field, and out there he just let the wellspring of his heart come up against the law almost. He was just a kid. Who was he to be leading worship in the field? Who was he to be entertaining the God of heaven without the practices and the rituals of the temple? And the prescribed methodologies and the, as we used to say, the bells and smells and the nonsense and the incense. A little David, like one of these young men over here, just said, I'm gonna, if they're going to put me out here with the sheep, then I'm going to make good use of my time. And I'm going to entertain an audience of one. And out of that heart, a fruitful, honest worship. 
God said, I can make a king out of that. I can make a leader out of that. I can form that heart any direction I want to because it's pliable and it's yielded and it's right. God said, Goliath's no match for this kid. And David proved it when he came out and he said, talk about hunting and fishing, huh? <laughs> I said, well, there's a big one. Man, he's so big. So, yeah, how can I miss him? He said, you come at me with a spear and a beam and all this stuff. I come at you out of relationship, out of a manly relationship of worship with the Most High God. I come at you in the name of the Most High God. There's only one way this battle ends. You lose. (laughs) The God of heaven wins. And God made a king. I like that song that had the line that said, Others saw a shepherd boy. God saw a king. So what do we want, guys? Do we want a system of practices? Do we want Sunday morning? Do we want to do it this way? One, two, three, four. I did my prayers. I read my Bible. I got my chapter done, whatever, and that's my worship. Or do we want to find ourselves leading our homes, leading the church, the body of Christ, with a Davidic kind of attitude? Personal pursuit of God, where you have to bring your own songs. You know, we have such advantage these days. My goodness, I we got one of those 32-inch TVs at our house. I know yours is much bigger. But doggone, the thing is wireless. And so we just push the button, and it's on the Internet, and... We put on Pandora like a lot of people do, right? The music thing. We're running around the house getting ready for church and somebody else is doing all the singing. All the worship songs are just kind of going through the house. And on one hand, I'm grateful because it provides an atmosphere. On the other hand, I'm jealous because they're doing all the singing. And I want to make up my own songs. I want to worship God from my heart, not theirs. Ladies, you know what I'm talking about is not exclusive. In fact, if we could have what I just talked about to the men, it would be a delight to you, wouldn't it? Let us draw near is the first instruction from the writer. And why do we draw near? To worship. We don't just draw near to land land on the throne of God or Lists of requests. We come to worship. The way is open. Will we go in? Or will we allow somebody standing next to us to hand us the sign? Because we didn't realize the door was open. So we could go in. Second point this morning, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Maintain hope and courage in keeping faith and confession. In just a couple of chapters, as we continue through Hebrews, we'll find these words in the exhortation of chapter 12, verse 4. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed striving against sin. 
Now, historically, remember, he's writing this letter to people. Those people are alive. That means they've not yet resisted to the shedding of their blood in martyrdom, striving against sin. So they're living. We're living. We are alive and well, but the exhortation is, look, you you haven't really gotten in the fight yet to the point of dying for your faith. Obviously, you're alive. You're reading this. You're hearing it. As we move a little further in this chapter, we come to verse 32, where his exhortation continues saying, But recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated or enlightened, after you came to know Christ, you endured a great struggle with sufferings. Partly, while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly, while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, don't cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. And if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. This is a commentary written by F.F. Bruce on the book of Hebrews. Part of the New International Commentary on the New Testament. He did a better job than I could, so I'm just going to read a little bit of him to you. May I do that? It is a reasonable inference from these words in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. That while people addressed, the people addressed had undergone persecution, none of them had thus far suffered martyrdom. This appears to, and he's trying to qualify the time at which this letter was written and to which group of people it may have been written. We still don't really know. But deriving from the content, who could it have been to? What year? This appears to rule out, for example, the Church of Jerusalem. Members of that church had suffered death in the persecution that broke out immediately after Stephen's execution in AD 33. As also in A.D. 44, just 11 years after, under Herod Agrippa I, when James the son of Zebedee was beheaded. And in A.D. 62, another 18 years after that, when James the Just was stoned at the instance of the high priest Annas II. It might also be thought to rule out any of the communities established through the witness of Hellenistic refugees from Jerusalem in A.D. 33, and the following years, though this would be by no means a conclusive inference. Again, another long paragraph to say we really don't know who we're writing to in the book of Hebrews. But my point is this, A.D. 33, A.D. 44, A.D. 62, with every couple of decades there was major persecution of the body of Christ. There were plenty of martyrs. And if we fast forward to today and listen to the voice of the martyrs, we'll understand that just today, while we're here at church, 
some nearly 1,200 people will die today for their faith in Christ. Not us. we got great carpet, cushy seats, cars and gas, and we can come and go, and we're free. But more than 1,000 in this 24-hour period, and the last, and the next, will give their lives for the name of Jesus. The exhortation to us is, hey, and to them, you need faith and patience to make it through. You need the exhortation of maintaining your hope and your courage in the life that you're living for Christ. Again, others have compared the language of our author here with the descriptions by Tacitus and Clement of the indignities inflicted on the Christians of Rome under Nero. You've ever studied this in AD 64. Their death, says Tacticus, was made a matter of sport. They were covered in wild beasts' skins and torn to pieces by dogs, or were fastened to crosses and set on fire in order to serve as torches by night when the daylight failed. This is common knowledge. Nero used to throw parties at night and he'd light up the whole area with burning Christians. Living, alive ones. Put them up on crosses and then set them on fire to provide light for his festivities. It's a matter of sport. It could never have been said to the Roman Christians after AD 64 that they had not yet resisted unto blood, striving against, against sin. That is precisely what they had done, and right nobly. While they had literally been made a, quote, public show, our author may use the term somewhat more figuratively, rather as Paul does in 1 Corinthians 4.9, where he says that he and his fellow apostles were men condemned to death in the arena and a spectacle to the whole universe. If, however, our author is addressing a group of Roman Christians before A.D. 64, we may recall another occasion which could satisfy his terms. Shortly after Claudius became emperor in A.D. 41, he imposed certain restrictions on the Jewish colony in Rome. These restrictions evidently did not accomplish the purpose for which they were imposed, so some eight years later, he took the more drastic step of expelling them from the capital. According to the well-known account of Suetonius, he expelled them because they were, quote, constantly indulging in riots at the instigation of Crestus. Crestus could have meant Christ. The common inference from Suetonius's account that these riots resulted from the recent introduction of Christianity into the Jewish colony in Rome, is supported by the fact that two of the expelled Jews, Priscilla and Aquila, who settled in Corinth, where Paul made their acquaintance in AD 50, were Christians at the time. Now, these historical accounts are given to us by Josephus and Philo. They're not biblical references. These are local uh, Contemporary historians who said, oh, yeah, Cole and Priscilla were part of the gang that got kicked out of town. 
And uh, then we pick them up in the scriptures with Paul making tents together with them in Corinth. A large-scale eviction of this nature would inevitably have been attended by widespread looting by the city proletariat, together with many other kinds of insults and indignities. We have a vivid account in Philo of what happened in Alexandria in AD 38. Don't try and remember all these dates. I couldn't. Amen. When the Jews of that city were forced to leave their homes in four of its five wards and be herded together into one ward. Their enemies, quote, overran the houses now left empty and began to loot them, dividing up the contents like spoils of war. The looting was accomplished by other acts of public outrage and violence. While there is no reason to support that the Roman Jews in AD 49 suffered anything like the extremes of brutality suffered by the Alexandrian Jews 11 years earlier, their experiences would very probably have been such as to merit our author's description here. Recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings. Partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulation, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. Those who were thrown into jail for their faith had no means at all. They would starve to death in jail unless someone came to visit them. Remember what Jesus said? I was in prison and you came and you visited me. And so the believers would go and visit each other in the prisons at risk of being imprisoned themselves for declaring who they were. And yet if they didn't go, their brothers and sisters would die of starvation and Nothingness. And so their lives were in peril. And this writer says, hey, you even had compassion on me and my chains. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. Maybe they were part of those wards that got crammed into one. And watched the looters take everything they had. You joyfully accepted the plunder of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Take my stuff. It doesn't matter. Take my body. Hasten the day for me. Send me there. It's not going to be bad to be in heaven. Maybe kind of painful getting there. But the author says, You've not struggled yet. Some of them have. You've been plundered. You've been tortured. You've been mocked. You've been ridiculed. Yeah, but come on. The others have given their lives. You, still alive, rejoice. Take courage. Don't cast away your confidence, which has great reward. You have need of endurance. So that after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. You need patience after doing His will. This is key. Let's hear it. His will, not ours. He doesn't say, go out and live your own life, do your own will, and then expect to get the goods. He says, after doing His will, then the promise is secure. Uh, life group leaders, for your in your notes this week, I, I left you a page. 
on the simple song by Fanny Crosby. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. This is my story, this is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Fanny Crosby, late 1800s. I think if I got the history right, and I wrote it out for you, made sure we had a copy of it, so I don't lie to you. Wrote more than 8,000 gospel songs in her lifetime. And she was blind. People would come to her, and somebody in this case came to her and said, friend, in fact, it was the wife of the founder of the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company, came to her and said, Fanny, played this melody. I said, what does that say? She said, oh, that's easy. That says, blessed assurance. And she wrote the song. Jesus, I mean, just hearing the tune. Never heard it before. Doesn't that just shake you? Yes. Play a little tune. How about that on the job site? Somebody goes, hey, hey, what does this say? Oh, that says blessed assurance. Hand me another nail. Hand me that shovel while we sing it. I mean, we're living this life. It's amazing. The writer quotes from Habakkuk. Chapter 2, if you'll remember the little story of Habakkuk, he's the prophet and he's frustrated with God. And the whole culture's gone bad and the evil is rampant and he says, I'm just going to say, God, what's the deal here? And, and he kind of frustrates and lets it out on the Father. When is all this going to come to an end? And he says, and after that, chapter 2, verse 1, he says, so I put myself up on my little watch post to see what he would say. You ever done that with God? And God in his loving kindness came to him and said, hey, Habakkuk, you know, it's all going to work out just fine. It's all going to be okay. I mean, the the unjust are going to receive their reward. It's just a little while longer and he who's coming will come. And even if he tarries, wait for it. (laughs) Because he is coming. And for Habakkuk, we well, also told him the just will live by his faith. Habakkuk, the just. In the Old Testament, he's saying the just will live by his faith. You need patience after you've done the will of God. You need endurance after you've done the will of God. It's not all going to be easy. It's not all going to be lightweight. And if you ever wanted to hurry up and experience, just hop a ticket and head to some uh, greater, what do they, they call it now, the third world nations, greater world nations, and just think about what the gospel is doing in those places. You will love where you live when you come home. To see the persecution firsthand, to try and meet with a church that cannot meet publicly. To be smuggled into some place where they will hang on your every word because you've read the Bible and you know the Savior. 
said, Habakkuk, even though it looks like it's going to be late, hang on. He will come. Habakkuk didn't live to see it, but Messiah came. And then the word is to us today. You have need of patience. Keep your faith. The just will live by their faith. In other words, your faith will keep you alive. You'll hang on to it. Because Jesus is coming again. We sang it this morning. Did you hear it at the end? He's coming again. He's coming back again. And just as surely as he said to Habakkuk, hang on, he's coming and he will come. Even though it seems like it's going to be a little late, hold on. He's coming. And to us, the same message. And with the same blessed assurance, we know he's coming again. John the Baptist got a little shaky at the end, didn't he? Matthew eleven three. Sent his disciples, go ask him, ask that, ask Jesus this question. Are you, this is the phrase in the original language, are you the coming one? Ask him, are you the coming one or should we look for another? This was a common phrase among the Hebrews, the coming one, the Messiah. They didn't use the word Messiah, they talked about the one who would come. John's question, are you the coming one? Should we look for another? What was Jesus' answer? He says, just go, yeah, go back and tell John what you see happening here. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the captive are set free. And he refers to his calling out of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to do these things. Therefore, I am the coming one. I am the one who has come. And he says to us, I will return. Don't cast away your confidence. Live like it's going to be today. Plan like it's coming in a hundred years. John the Baptist was discouraged, needed confirmation and assurance, and he got it. How about you? You ever get discouraged? You ever lose your confidence walking with Christ? You ever get shaken in your faith? The writer here to the Hebrews is saying, hey, in the midst of your persecution, in the midst of your trouble, God is testing your faith. Hang in there. Hold on. Endure. Press through. You haven't striven to bloodshed yet. You haven't gone the whole mile. You've only gone half the mile. But he blesses them and says, but you, you fellowship with me in my suffering. You visit them in jail. You're doing the right stuff. Don't lose your courage. And finally, which will only take 20 minutes. Kidding. Just kidding. Verse 24 says, Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the banner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Knowing these things, that the door is open, the blood is shed, the way in is there, and we're to go in to worship. And that in the midst of worshiping the one God, there will be persecution and rejection. There will be ridicule and suffering. Jesus said, 
hey, in the world you'll have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I overcame the world. Wouldn't it be great if you just walked in here and said that to us this morning? Hey, be of good cheer. I overcame. Look, live, death, hell, and the grave. Got no hold on me. Sin has no more dominion over me or you. So be of courage. Be of good heart. Let your faith draw you through it. Come on in. Let's worship. Sing me some of your own songs today. Keep your patience and your endurance. But listen, here's the final exhortation. You're supposed to help one another. Now that's not an expression from our mainstream culture. Is it? Right? It's I, me, mine. The culture that these young men are being raised in, the school systems, the indoctrination processes, the news media, all the stuff that's coming at us. says, get your own first. The heck with the other guy. Right? Culture tells us this. It's constant, constant, constant press. I, I've forgotten it now, but I used to keep this written down somewhere so I wouldn't forget it. I forgot why I wrote it down. <laughs> Just kidding. You know, the magazines we grew up reading were like life, right? Life was so broad. Even still has the greatest photo database in the world, I think. Then it was people. And then us. You notice how small the circle starting to get? And we. Isn't there a magazine called I? Self. Yeah. Yeah. Should have one of them. I, me, mine. That's the cultural shift. If you can capture that in a moment, that's the cultural shift. Everybody's included. Life. All the way over to self. The exhortation of Scripture is Consider one another. Mutual benefit. You know, we all have a role if the word is mutual. If the word mutual means everybody's got a responsibility. We're supposed to give and receive. That's what I love about life groups is the community aspect. Is that there are things that are going to happen in life groups and community relationships. That cannot happen any other way. I could take you to the Bible and show you this. I can take you to a psychiatrist's office and show you this. I can take you to men's scientific study of himself that says some things you cannot get outside of community. You just can't get it. It's not available. You have to live in a family or a community of people or surrogate family or add-ons. I was thinking, Shan, we were, I was thinking about this, rejoicing for Kitty and Ira. And our kids, we had no grandparents left. Kids are growing up. But Shan let us borrow her parents. Kitty and Ira. And to this day, our kids know them as grandma and grandpa. You know, we buried them both. And, but they, they put a deposit into us that we could never have. A lot of you speaking into our kids' lives. And to our next generation, you're the grandparents of the church. You're the parents, the extras, the stand-ins, the help-alongs. And they'll they'll challenge you, too. (laughs) 
community, mutual, give, receive. There are days when we need to be the receivers. You just can't always be the receiver. You can't always be the needy one. You got to prop up every now and then and give a little something out. Jesus says more blessed to give than receive. So even in our hurt and our woundedness and our brokenness, if we can give out and help somebody else, it brings life to us. Right? So we don't, we can't hide behind our brokenness and our woundedness and our failure and say, well, I'm no good. I can't do it. God says, hey, do it out of that. You know, it might be a little iffy, so take a couple of people with you in case you really are weird. I don't want you hurting everybody. Give out. Give out. Everybody can pray for somebody else. You can encourage people. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. The King James says provoke one another. And I, I, I always say this, and I probably will never have a new illustration, but... The word provoke in the original language is the picture of two little kids on the playground. I saw it out here not more than a week ago. A little brother and sister were here. They weren't ours. They were visiting. So can we use your playground? And the little guy, they sent him down in the dirt, the little one. And uh, he was fishing around the rocks. And then the little sister came over and sat next to him. And then they dig long for the rules of the playground to begin. The rules of the playground are this. I take a handful of this, throw it in your face. If nothing happens back, I'm in charge. That's the rules. It's like a pecking order. So a little sister grabbed a handful, just did in the kid's face. I not even being related to the moment. I stuck my head out and said, Hey, hey, we don't do that. She just sort of glanced over at me, this all of four or five years old, rigid, who are you kind of response. And I thought the same thing. Oh, yeah, who am I? I don't even know where the parents are. So I pulled my head back inside the door just in time to see the little guy wait for her to turn around. Boom. He dished her a handful right back. I said, now we're setting up the parameters. Crazy stuff. I would like to leave. That, that's provoking, by the way. That's what that meant. Provoke. It's the, you know, the two kids that push each other in the chest. Here we go. You know, push. Until somebody just goes off. Right? Push, push. Push, push. Push, push. And finally somebody doubles up a fist and lets them have it. Now think about that from this word. It says, consider, let us consider one another. How can I provoke you to good works and love? How can I egg you on to the point where you, hey, I'm going to egg you back. Egg you back. Do good works. Go ahead. Let's see you love somebody. Come on. (laughs) Okay, I can. Well, then do it. Well, I will. We'll do it now. You know, just let's go together and do it. It doesn't have to be angry, provoking, but it's that. And so we all have a responsibility in drawing near, in holding fast our confidence, and provoking one another to love and good works until he comes. You know what the fun part of my job is? Is realizing that everything I do is worthless in heaven. You don't need preachers. We're done. We'll probably get the back of the line. 
You guys had your day to be in the spotlight. <laughs> Feel sorry for me now. It'll be okay there, I'm sure. Father, your word is truth. I thank you for your word. I thank you. The depth of what is here is certainly beyond me. But I thank you for allowing us to scratch the surface. Father, I pray for the men of the church, the body of Christ, that you would draw them into worship. That you would give them those private times when they can be outlandish in front of you in the field like David, nobody looking. And feel free to give you honor and praise, the fruit of their lips giving thanks to your name. And that, Lord, you would give them the courage to bring it home and inspire their wives and their families. For those of us who are grandparents, God, that you would give us that same event to spread it into the responsible families you've given it to us. Lord, I pray for encouragement in the home in times of trouble, Lord, and we've not seen much here in this country as others have. But, Lord, the troubles that we do have seem to rock us. So we ask for the infilling of your Holy Spirit to grant us courage, faith, and patience and help us to be like Habakkuk who even in his frustrated moment, wanting justice on the unjust and wanting evil to be banished, was heard from you that it's all going to work out okay. Live by your faith. Hang on. I'm coming. Don't give up. And Lord, get our eyes off of ourselves. Help us to provoke one another and to be provoked by others to love and to good works. We pray that we would be the body of Christ, that we would be the temple of the Lord. We would become that spiritual house and habitation of your worship. Every time we gather, whether in this place or in living rooms or in businesses or in parks, wherever you gather us, we would be your place of habitation. And worship would happen there together and you would visit us. Ask these things in Jesus' name, Lord, and I know that you're going to answer. Because your word says, He who promised is faithful. We give you glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.